that's what a family does is the order of things and uh, and i really think like there is a certain segment of our political makeup in this country of political leaders who don't want that order that order is catastrophic to them because order creates all of this all of this peace in the family and this time to contemplate what is truly good for you and and with that you come out being much more much more conservative values much more traditional much more religious um, but it's these things like abortion and contraception and surrogacy and homosexuality and divorce that they they do everything they can to, to make access to these things a lot easier and all of these things the thing they have in common is they create less families they need to make a decision like what, what's your decision is christ is christ who we said he is yes or no like let's man up a little bit that's what fatherhood's about right that's our good man guest this week someone i just can't vouch for kidding he's my younger brother tyler rowley who drafted a book that is taking him to the top of the catholic intellectual field coordinating with some of the most serious Catholic minds in the country, published by Ignatius Press, featured on platforms like EWTN and Relevant Radio, even mentions on places like the National Review and Fox News Podcast. The title is Because of Our Fathers, and it examines the crucial role and responsibility that fathers possess, much more than you moms, in terms of passing the Catholic faith down to their children. We're talking about the generational transmission of the faith and why men and masculinity are so crucial in the raising of our kids, and why God is called Father. Come take a look. Here is a book that I think ought to be in every home library. You see, a woman who is single at age 40, having spent 10 or 20 years raising children, is really not quite the same as a man of age 40 who's been working continuously for 20 years. What? But it's clear through these tapes, it's clear through Planned Parenthood's own numbers, that they're not about health care, they're about abortion. That's it. Look at this lead pencil. There's not a single person in the world who could make this pencil. Remarkable statement? Not at all. You are a liar. Radical meaning not just extreme politics, what they believe in, but how far they're willing to go to win, to win elections. And thuggery, lying and cheating and stealing are things that they've proven over and over again no, they that they're willing to do. All right. We mustn't kid ourselves into thinking that the communists have placed their agitators only into the black communities. They're working both sides of the street. They want hatred, violence, and bloodshed between the races, and they don't care how they get it or whom they use, even children if necessary. You're black or you're white, or you're Latino or you're transsexual, or you're homosexual, or whatever. You're a group. You're a member of a group. The British government wasn't stabbing us in the gut with, uh, with bayonets. They were oppressing us with taxes and regulations. That's what we meant by tyranny 250 years ago. I want the people of America to be able to work less for the government and more for themselves. This is the chief meaning of freedom. I, I think we're talking across purposes. Eternal law is the mind of God. The natural law is a participation in the eternal law or a reflection of it. All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. See if you can be some kind of hero. Make the suffering in the world less. This is the show, and we're not going to change it. All right, welcome to Good Men host Travis Rowley. As you have learned in the intro, today's guest is Tyler Rowley, younger brother by several years. Uh, Tyler got a book published by Ignatius Press because of our fathers. 23 Catholics tell how their fathers led them to Christ, and it's about the generational transmission of faith, particularly dealing with fathers being most important, passing religion down to their sons and into the generations. Tyler, good morning. Good morning, brother. <laughs> but this is what I've been thinking the most about is, this is not gonna be like, it's gonna have to be more of a conversation than an interview because- Yeah, you know, I won't let you interview me. Can't do like a professional voice because it's, 
Like, I'll just, once I make eye contact. Actually, no, and this got me thinking, okay, we'll start with, this got me thinking about, I was going to make kind of a joke about how we used to get in trouble at church. And if we were bad in church, we had to go to our rooms for an hour. When we got home, like church is an hour. You just, you were bad in church. Go to your room for an hour. And one time I was sitting like right next to dad and we were goofing off and he squeezed my, my leg so hard that I thought it was going to snap off. And I was like, and I was going to kind of make a joke. Like, is that what you mean about the importance of the father? <laughs> but then, but then in the very, I got to go to the back of your, it, when you actually mention our dad at the end of your book, you say, you, you know, you basically send a shout out to him. I thank God for having given me a father and mother, James and Deborah, who rightly ordered my mind to love God above all things. I'm fortunate and indeed blessed to have their witness of marriage and devotion to the one true faith. My family's commitment to the church has grown considerably since we were children, motivated in large part by our youngest brother's ordination to the priesthood, but in no small part due also to the consistent witness of a committed father who got on his knees each Sunday in front of his four sons. Without a weekly reminder of the strength and transcendence of God, it is likely our religious commitment would be significantly different today. My brothers and I are all intentional Catholics today because of our father. And then I started thinking, oh, maybe it's not, maybe it's not such a joke because you read a lot of the stories and the testimonies in the book. And a lot of the things that the contributors do is they mention the small things, not necessarily like squeezing your son, their son's you know, leg to the point where he was, this eight-year-old was in a lot of pain. But a lot of it was like, you know, my dad would hand me his glasses. My dad would put me on his shoulders. And even something as small as seeing your dad get on his knees is, you know, I wanted to kind of start out with that and be like, is this really about child psychology and just what they're absorbing through witness, witnessing their dad do all these small things? Yeah, I think a lot of it is that that's true that a lot of the contributors are, you can, you can sort of just see in their reflection, like these small things that they remember their father's doing. Like my dad used to get on his knees every single Sunday that has just like this infusion of grace into you. Like it, it's, it's a simple thing. It's like, Oh, you're going to church. Okay. But the fact that your dad, the fact that dad is taking the time to do it, dad is getting on his knees, which is just a very obvious sign that the biggest and strongest guy in your life is admitting, if not, you know, if not with his words, with his body, that he is not the biggest and strongest thing in your life. There's actually something way above him to the point where he is getting down your knees is, is many times an act of worship. Um, so that just has like this osmosis effect, I think of, of just instilling the faith into the children. And um, yeah, and that's exactly what I meant when I said that. And I actually remember the exact time you're talking about at mass that we, me and you, it was like me and you specifically got in a ton of trouble. We, we just like took it to the next level at one mass. Like we were just not going to care what they thought. We always, sat, we always sat in the back for this. Room. Yeah. And when we got home, I remember he met, he made you do yard work and he told me to go up to my room and similar to <laughs> how he squeezed your leg. Like I got a beating and yeah. And like, I, and I deserved it. Like, I, and I remember the, the lesson was like, why did I think I could like mock my dad <laughs> for an hour? And, but that's, you know, mom didn't do that. Dad did it. That was the, 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 the justice of yeah. uh, that, you know, that, that um, is indicative of God, the father, right? So like God is justice and he is mercy. Um, our parents usually showed us mercy, but when we deserved it, they showed us justice and children know that like children know my five-year-old knows when he deserves to, you know, get hit or punished. Um, it's not like they, you know, if, if you're, if you're doing it in a, godly way they recognize the, the justice in it so just that ju just just having two parents and then having parents who who show you the mercy and the justice at the appropriate times like that is the, the most basic theological lesson that the kid is getting from age two three four five that's all being absorbed into what 
what God is like. Um, and this is, this is obviously the problem um, when children don't have that. They don't, they don't know. They don't, get, they don't get the justice when they need it. They don't get the mercy from the father when they need it. So they have no vision of, of their own father. So they can't have a vision of God, the father. And it, you know, and you just always go back to the Holy family, right? That's why I talk about the Holy family a lot in the beginning, like the Holy family, Mary, Joseph, Jesus is the model. You know, it's not the exception for, for how we're supposed to raise like Jesus is God and, and God, the father gives us the model family um, for us to, for us to emulate. So without, w- without that dynamic, you know, things, things break down. So that's a, that's a point of the book that, that we kind of, we talk about, you know, the, the, the societal impact of the breakdown of the family, but then even more so more to the point of the book is the spiritual breakdown and the breakdown of the church when we're not, uh, when children aren't raised the right way, basically. Yeah. Again, this, uh, my, brother Tyler Rowley, <clears throat> Tyler Rowley, who wrote this book because of our fathers. Um, you, you jumped around in a lot of different spots. I wanted to kind of start out with this, a real child psychological angle from this, because we're not really talking about, um, you know, young adults who can now delve into the intellectualism of the faith. We're talking about kind of like, you know, before you're out of the house. I mean, the best observation you make uh, in the book, I think, is Joseph, that if there's, you said, I think you said just like this, if there's any family that doesn't need a father involved, it would be the Holy family. It would be, it, it, Mary and Jesus, you would think wouldn't need, a, wouldn't need that father figure. But the first thing that God does is make sure that there's a, there's a, a father figure in even Jesus's life. So can you yeah, exactly. That? Yeah. That, that's kind of like, uh, uh, sort of a spiritual insight, but it's pretty common sense when you, you know, I just, I did some reflecting on the Holy family, obviously, because if you're going to write a Catholic book on fatherhood, obviously you, the best, the best thing to pray on and reflect on and contemplate is the Holy family. Like, okay. So if God, if God became a man, how, what was the model in, in which he was raised? And it's, it's striking. Obviously I don't remember ever sort of learning this specific point, but it's striking how how Joseph is 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 kept there intentionally. And and what's interesting is is the scriptures, the gospel writers, give Joseph an out. It's not like he couldn't have walked away and still been a righteous man. It says like in his righteousness he was going to put Mary away, you know, and walk away from the situation. There was nothing wrong with that. That would have been completely a normal. Uh, and just thing to do based on what he was experiencing. But even in those circumstances, God pulls him back into the Holy family and be, and creates this model of, of family life. And what's interesting, sort of when you, when you think about the family, like we, we sort of take the family for granted, like, okay, you have, you have a dad, you have a mom and you have kids. Um, like I said, we, we sort of take that for granted in the sense that it doesn't have to be like that. You know, like, why does the dad, why does some guy who impregnates a woman have to stick around and raise that kid? Like, where do we even get, get the notion that that is so, so matter of fact? Like, oh, of course he's going to stick around. And th- this sort of gets to the heart of why we even, of why we call God father in the first place, right? So, this is like a really deep theological point that in our culture, which, you know, just understands nothing about, you know, theology, understands nothing about scripture. We just see God, oh, God is called father. That must be because uh, the, the biblical writers were, you know, misogynists. Um, yeah. But no, not a toxic quite, types. Right. Toxic masculinity. This, this is indicative of a culture that subdued women. And it's, it's what's striking is that it's actually the opposite of that. Um, the biblical writers in their inspiration understood that calling God the father was crucial to protecting women and children. The family is what protects women and children. So what we call the patriarchy, you know, today, and we, and we say that with disdain, like, Oh, this patriarchal system, the patriarchal system is what protects women and children more than anything. Christianity 
is what protects women and children more than anything. Compelling a man who could simply impregnate a woman and then walk away, but compelling him to stick around and raise his family is the thing that protects women and children more than anything. That's more biblical psychology. You know, I, there, there could probably be several good reasons why, why, you know, why he's got a he, why couldn't he be a she, you know, and, and I, the assumption by a lot of our friends and a lot of people today is probably, is probably that like, Oh, because back then they weren't as progressive. It took 2,000 years for us to start, you know, g- getting this, this, the gender equality thing right. But, you know, and what I've always heard is that, which made a lot of sense as far from a psychological perspective, is that men are different from women, you know, and men need to be controlled. It, it, it's, it's not an unfair thing to say that men can be dangerous. I mean, men need to be raised a certain way because we can go, we can be very evil and we can be, or we can be very good in the protectors that, that we're capable of being. And if God is a she, there, there, he needs to be afraid. It's just, are teenage boys afraid of their mother on the level that they're afraid of their father? No. So men, you know, I've heard, heard it explained this way. Like if, if God is a she, that can have a drastic effect on the psychology of the men following that religion. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's one, one of the main reasons that the God as father sort of has this, this it bends the, the male aggression away from violence and towards the family or towards pro-social institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, men and women are very different. Men, men, tend towards, men tend towards violence and men tend towards just a, a sexual drive that has no connection mm-hmm. to a child. Um, so call, calling God, is it calling God father? Um, it has a submissive effect on the man because if God, the father is forgiving and merciful and just, well, then that is, a, that's a lesson for the man that he should be forgiving, merciful and just. If it's just a, if it's just a woman um, or a, a female deity that, that is merciful and just. Well, yeah, that's females, but that's not for the man. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, yeah, calling God father has this sort of bends his natural aggression away from that and, and makes him, ma- makes him uh, more like God, the father. And that would be, that would be where we would, people like us would assume like, that's part of the inspiration of the writing of the Bible. Like it's an, it's an intentional you know, God is the father, not the, not the mother. Um, it's not some sort of backwards culture that, oh, of course God's a he because, you know, women are just, you know, second-class citizens. It'd be like an... Inst- yeah, it's, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not that at all. It's um, exactly under the inspiration, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas always uses the word fittingness that the, like it's more fitting to call God father for these reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other reasons too, like he's the first cause of the creation, right? So if you think about the sexual act, like the, like the, the man is the first cause of the creation of a child. God is the first cause of, of all creation. But w- one thing that we should definitely point out is that God is not a father or a mother, like in a literal human sense, God is not a man or a woman, right? God transcends these things. These things are, these things are used by humans uh, using our best language to best understand what God is like. Jesus was a man. Jesus was a, was a human man. Um, and that was most fitting. It was most fitting for Jesus to be a man. Um, and you can, you can go through all theological reasons. I think one of the main reasons is that because the most, one of the, one of the most Christian characteristics of the father is a self-sacrificial person. The person who's the person who who is a servant to all others and who sacrifices himself for all others is the role of the man is the role of the father and that's why Je- that's why Jesus is pre- the the second person of the Trinity is presented to us as a man who takes on those characteristics and shows us that on the cross and and through his life um, but that and 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 that's not to say that God doesn't is doesn't have you know these female characteristics, and that he's he's nurturing, he's loving, he's forgiving. Um, God trans, transcends these things, but 
um, Jesus g gives us a model um, in, in, in his, his own self, him being a man and him calling God the Father. And then, as, and then the church teaches us why, why these words are, are the most fitting. And they have practical theological reasons and they have practical sociological reasons. And, you know, women who understand this aren't offended by this, you know. Um, it's only sort of this, like, you know, this, this radical egalitarian, you know, uh, feminist um, that doesn't try to understand these things, doesn't understand how they actually benefit her life. And, and, you know, she just kind of stands on the shoulders of the giants who, who thought these things out and who created these great civilizations based on these ideas of God, the Father, and Christianity, and then sort of just attacks them from this, uh, you know, from this irrational standpoint. It's a, I mean, your book doesn't focus on this type of uh, theology, but as you're reading it, your mind goes there, at least mine does. I mean, you know, with everything going on in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter and Antifa, you start relating what you're reading to what's going on around you in the world currently. And I just, all I, and we're going to get into the contributors and, and more about um, the content in the book, but um, we've, we've already kind of just gone down this path. I just, let me read, try, let me, let me read this but, real quick. Yeah. I have the, I have a book near me that um, gets to the point of what we were talking about is God, the father. So this, this might sum, sum up the point pretty well. Um, this is, this is actually called Calling God Father by, by John Miller, Essays on the Bible, Fatherhood, and Culture. Um, so he kind of sums up this point. He says, this fact, as, as much as any other, may help explain why we are taught to call God Father. It is not because fathers are more important for children than mothers, and it, certainly, it is certainly not because men are superior to women and thus more deserving of being divinized as a byproduct of our language for God. It is rather because across human societies, fatherhood is far weaker and more fragile than motherhood. I do not believe, and I know Professor Miller, the author of the book, does not believe that men need God more than women do. But I do suspect that fathers need more reminding from God than mothers do. Perhaps calling God father is in part just such a reminder. Mm -hmm. so I th that, that's a good summary of... Uh, Kind of like I would say, doing. you really have to, uh, you know, the, the toxic masculinity thing, when I really think about it, I almost think there's, you know, it's, it's left-wing garbage, but it's, but it, there's, it's almost like a, there's a fair enough um, thing there because men can be so evil and there's no shortage of examples and you have to cultivate manhood so carefully. Like, I think what, what we just heard is that fatherhood is more fragile. Like, yeah, like men are tempted to leave there you know I, I assume they're they're referring to like the mother's love for this child which is different from the father's love for the child right men you know men men can do like horrible horrible things and if it's not cultivated properly if they're not scared to death of god which i think is one of the seven virtues fear of god like that's a yeah. good thing that's a virtuous thing to be afraid and um yeah i mean god the father makes more sense than god the mother in in that sense it's more um what was the word that Aquinas used? Fitting. Right. Um, yeah, there's a, um, I actually have an interesting story happened last week. I had um, an appliance guy come over the house. We had a problem with our washing machine. So he came over the house and the kids were all in the house and I could tell that he was a father himself. He, obvious that he had some children and he did. He had, th he had three children. So we, got, we started talking and he said that he was one of ten. ten or, he, or he said that his father had ten children. And I knew by the way he said it, it was sort of a abnormal situation. So we kind of pressed him on it. And he said, he said, yeah, well, my father had 10 children with five different women. And I said, wow. I said, does, do you, do those 10 children like have a relationship with him? And he said, every single one, except for me, hates him. He has no relationship with any of them except for me. And he said, and I only, I only forgave him and started a relationship with him when I became a Christian. You have this one who has this different perspective on it, but it's only because he came to God the Father. And you maybe make the assumption that he only really came to God the Father and, and, and ended up forgiving his father because those are the characteristics of God the Father in Christianity, that he's loving and forgiving. So you can't come to God and not become like God. We can, like, what do you think is more effective? 
for to just take this kid who's who's growing up with just his just his mom in the household. He has no dad. He has no relationship with his dad. We could like you, someone might say, "All right, well, this is kind of a false hope." Like you th you think that that bringing the because God is, is a father, that that's sort of going to have some sort of effect on this child. And some might call it, you know, this false hope. But, you know, what's more of a false hope? Like throwing more welfare programs at him and social workers at him and volunteers at him and making sure his mom makes more money at her job or there's more opportunities for her. Um, is that false hope? Or is giving, giving him a, a faith that extends um, extends to fatherless children the the covenant of fatherhood, like the Christian covenant of fatherhood, the Christian idea and a relationship with God the Father. Like, which one of those would you rather do for the kid? Like, just throw social programs at him and help his mom, and hopefully he he rises above this father wound, or actually give him Christ, um, or actually give him God the Father. And that's why th th I just thought of. Um, Remember, remember that story a couple of years ago in the Pro Providence school system? Like we're, we were, it, I think the two stories coincided. We were all learning like how absolutely abysmal the Providence school system was. Like it couldn't, it couldn't have been like more of a, a nightmare what they were uncovering. And then there was this story that coincided where there was this book that was recommended for uh, fall reading or summer reading. Yeah, remind me what that was. Um... Yeah, it was, it was just, it was a book by like this, this guy, this black guy who kind of rose above, um, you know, the way that he was raised and he became really successful. And he talks moderately about like his relationship with God in the yeah. book. Like yeah, it was a passing the book. Yeah. And the, and the, and the school system, like teachers went nuts and it was canceled. They, they'd spent like $150,000 on buying the books and they, and they, then, they, then it wasn't recommended reading for, for the kids. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like, okay, so like you have all these kids who you're, who you're not educating, you're, you're terrible teachers. They're not getting an education they're, a lot of them are growing up in these broken homes. So they're not getting the spiritual lesson of fatherhood. And then along comes a book that might have like the lesson of fatherhood in there and the, and the lesson of God and who Christ is and they go nuts. And it's like, we can't have it. Yeah. And take the religion out of it for a second. And obviously you're, it's very Christ centered and very Catholic your book, but um, just break it down to what these secularists are concerned with, which is getting a good education and a good job and uh, creating opportunity for these kids. And we know that, and, and you, you spell it out, like, like forget about, the Catholic thing for a second, just the sociological studies scream that fatherlessness um, is going to be a huge detriment. It's the biggest predictor of your child not graduating, going to jail, not having a job. All the social problems that the left complains about starts with that, correct? Yeah, so I came up with an acronym for, to help myself remember so, some of the statistics because they're all staggering when you, when you take fatherlessness into account what happens to children. But remember PSP. So remember PSP, that's poverty, school dropout, prison. Poverty, school dropout, prison. And then it goes 5, 10, 20. Five times more likely, 10 times more likely, 20 times more likely. So the kid who grows up without the father is five times more likely to be in poverty, 10 times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to go to prison. PSP. Um, and then, but even suicide, abortion, um, everything, everything skyrockets. Um, so encourage, but, but and, encouraging fatherhood, okay, I can see a lot of secularists kind of getting on board with that when you show them the sociological studies, but then where does the Christian Catholicism come down on top of that and say, well, this is really the linchpin. This is what keeps fathers around. This is what, this is the father passing down lessons, cultural lessons, no more cultural uh, forgetfulness, like you're saying. And that's ultimately the reason the, the, um, the imitation of Christ, um, that, that fathers are going to stay around and do the right thing by the mother. Is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah, exactly. So there, you can talk about the sociological impact, but okay. I mean, how do you, and, and this is kind of how I think about everything. Like to me, every single political issue always boils down to 
what do you believe about the world? Like, what do you believe about existence? Do you believe in God? Do you not believe in God? Are you a Christian? Like, what, what sort of worldview do you have? Because we can talk about, you know, PSP and, and five times and 20 times more likely. But if your worldview is one that doesn't really care about that, you know, or, or yeah, isn't. That's always where my mind goes. I'm always thinking because we know so many, you know, at least lapsed Catholics and or, you know, semi-atheist friends of ours, because that's just where the world, America is at this point anyway. So I'm always thinking about how do I like tell people to read this book when there's almost like a prerequisite that you have to at least believe in God or be somewhat Christian before you kind of even go here. You know what I mean? So I'm always thinking, yeah, well, I think, how do you I, talk to these leftists, you know? Yeah, the book, I would say the book isn't necessarily written for leftists. The book is written for like that, that guy who you know, who you grew up with, who, you know, if you asked him, if you were out at a bar with him and, and you know, someone, religion came up, he'd say, yeah, I'm, Cath I'm Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, so he like, he wants to say he's Catholic. He probably had his, all his children baptized, um, probably goes to church on Christmas and Easter, doesn't want to give up the identity of being Catholic, but for all intents and purposes, his relationship with God is, is non-existent. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't pray. He doesn't go to confession. He doesn't believe in the sacraments. He does. He might, he might loosely believe in the existence of God, but he doesn't really know who Christ is. He doesn't really understand the theological teachings on Christ. It's culturally conservative, uh, culturally Christian, but the, the, the theology and the intellectualism of it is all lost. Right. So to that person, I'm saying, okay, you need to know, you know, Tom, that the way that you're living, you may think it's okay for you. Like you may think that, you know, you're, you know, if there is an afterlife, you're, you're in pretty good shape, which I would, I would argue with that anyways. But, but let's just say you think it's okay for you, but based on your example, your children are going to care far less than you about their Catholic identity. They're not going to say they're Catholic, you know, in 20 years when they're out with their friends at a bar and your grandchildren are almost certain to not be baptized at all, have no relationship with God. So you are the person who's going to cause your children and your grandchildren to lose the faith. Now, what's interesting is, okay, now we're looking, that's forward thinking about your, your children, your grandchildren, but let's think backwards for a second. How did you become Catholic? Oh, you, oh, well, my, my dad is pretty serious. Oh, yeah, how about your grandfather? Oh, he was really devout. Oh, how about your great-great-grandfather? Oh, so it, from what I know, you know, we had a ton of, you know, Irish priests and nuns in the family. It's like, yeah, you probably, your faith probably goes back to St. Patrick. You know, you, the, the Catholicism probably runs in your family for 1,700 years. Isn't it interesting that you, you know, Tom, in 2020 are going to be the one who just gives it up. And here's the question. You can give it up. If it's not true, give it up. Like don't, stop teaching your kids things that are false. I'm all for that. Mm -hmm. But shouldn't you find out if it's true or not? And that's what conservatives, Catholics, what I've always respected about those intellectual groups is that they welcome the challenge of just laying the cards out on the table and seeing who believes in it because they truly believe that they have the better ideas. At like, one point, in your, I'm sorry, in, in, in your introduction, I was kind of waiting for it, and it was about halfway through or more toward the end of your, your introduction to the book where you kind of just go, you got to go all Tyler, like evangelical, and be like, by the way, the number one reason why you should uh, be Catholic is because it's true. You know, it's, right. like, it's like, I just want to remind everyone that I'm not just, you know, spouting off what might be good for the Catholic Church. It's the reason I'm actually doing that is because, you should believe in it and investigate it. And yeah. Like it's not about, yeah. Like it's not about getting our numbers up in the Catholic church. And I think some people in the church think like that, like this is about, you know, it's a social group and, the, and how do we, how do we get more members? We have to have, you know, more lively music and we have to, it's like, no, no, no. How do we get more yeah. people who believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate and that our actions matter, that we're fallen from sin, that, that there's a first cause of the universe. God created us. He revealed himself through Christ. And you can only get to him if you're like him. And you may spend eternity separated from God. Um, how do we get people to believe those things? Because those are the things that Christ was really specific about people needing to believe in order to change 
the dynamic of their heart in order to, in order to be with him forever. It's, it's interesting. Like a lot, like a lot of people today can't believe in anything unless they understand everything. And I don't, I don't know the psychology of, of how that came about. It probably has something to do with this, like this radical scientism that we've gotten into. Like, yeah. I can't believe anything unless I can test it and, and repeat it through a scientific method. But the word mystery is a really important word in the Catholic church. We don't pretend that we need to understand absolutely everything about the world in order to understand some things. And then in order to be passionate about those things. And it only makes sense. Like if you, like, why do we have to evangelize other people? And why do we have to save other people? God could do that by himself. Okay, we, sure, he could, but that's not what, ha- that's not what seems to have happened. That wasn't the through the, life, either, right? through the life of Christ. And, and if we could only understand, if we could understand everything about the world, that means that God is only as smart as me. Yeah. And that's like, that's hardly a God that you'd want to worship if he's only as transcendent and, and intelligent as me. So yeah, we me, have to like, you're reminding me of like the scientists. I think Einstein was one of them who the deep, the deeper they went searching for knowledge, the more you would think these would be the people that would be the least humble and be like, Oh, I understand more than anybody. But the deeper, the deeper you go into the sciences, the more amazed they get and the more miracles they see. You know, and we're not, we're not, it's probably a good thing that we're, that we don't know everything and aren't on, aren't on that plateau of knowledge, right? Where you, there's nothing more to know from a, from a human psychology. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it just, I think, I think logically it's not even, it's not even possible. Yeah. And I think you just have to, uh, you have another, another key word in the church is humility, right? So we don't understand everything. We don't need to understand everything. I remember there was a time in, um, it was in a, a um, class rcia class i was sitting in an rcia class because a priest that i really liked was was teaching it and one of the women in there who she was kind of considering coming into the church but she wasn't really sure uh, but she was taking the classes and she sort of just kind of had this moment where she we were talking about salvation and the necessity to to be catholic for your salvation and her her dad had died years before and he wasn't I don't think he was a Catholic and it just sort of bothered her personally that she couldn't as a, if she became Catholic, she couldn't really have this assurance that he was in heaven. And that was kind of what was holding her back from entering the church. And I remember kind of explaining to her what we just talked about, like this, this, the humility of Catholicism, the, the mystery that we admit exists and what I said, like a lot of other religions, a lot of other worldviews will just tell you what you want to hear. Oh, your dad was probably a good man. He's probably in heaven, right? And the Catholic Church never says anything that they can't know, right? That was one of the things that drew me to the Catholic Church. They, they, don't, they, they don't just give you answers because they know that that answer is going to comfort you. They stop short whenever they, they reach a point where knowledge is unattainable for them. Um, and that's, that's attractive if you care about truth, right? And that'll get that. It doesn't help anybody, this false sense of charity that we have where, you know, you go to any funeral today and the priest talks about how the person, uh, he's definitely in heaven looking down upon us. No, he's not. He's not definitely in heaven. Right. He's, he's just not. <laughs> so like true. And people respond you know, to that, you know, because when the culture particularly is, 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 feminized like that and telling you what you want to hear you find out ironically all the time that people want to be given the truth the harsh truth and you get more response from that you're going back to what you're saying about oh we need better music and mass you know all of a sudden it's like there's something inside humans that respect tradition and the organs and and uh, and and things like that that speak to universal truths not not some sort of political fad that seems cool on facebook you know all of a sudden it's like you just find that out over and over again, you find it out when you find the courage to speak the truth. Sometimes, where you post something and it'll be and and you'll see like all these people respond to it, like I, I believe that too. You know, there's so when you just kind of not, not necessarily speak the truth, but speak your mind. People, yeah. like, people if you're not, it. yeah. The, um, Eric Eric Sammons is a guy that I I follow on the internet. He's a really good Catholic 
um, apologist, and he said um, recently he just put out a tweet. It said, "If you're not offending someone in this culture, you're not Catholic." Yeah. You know, and it's true. It's like, yeah, like how could you possibly be living the Catholic faith in this culture right now and not be called a hateful, bigoted, you know, backwards-thinking person? Like you. Right. Why? Why is it though? Did you did you come across any answers of why? what the mother does isn't as important as what the father does in terms, yeah, so that's, of, in terms that's of growing question. up I'm Catholic too. Right. That's a, yeah. That's a question in and of itself that in the whole book that this might, this might be the best paragraph that, that gets at that specific question. It comes from father Scalia's essay on, on page 71. So this is what father Paul Scalia. He's the son of late Supreme court justice, Antonin Scalia. Uh, I think, he had nine children. Paul, I'm not sure where Paul falls, but he became a priest. He's a priest in the Archdiocese of um, uh, down in D.C., um, somewhere around there. But he says, Father Scalia says, fatherhood is always caught up with bestowing an identity on one's children. The identity we receive from mom is organic and instinctive. The identity from dad must be more deliberately given and received. Patrimony indicates the inheritance of wisdom and knowledge that we received from our ancestors. It gives us an identity and keeps us from being historical orphans, isolated in our own little blip of time. The word patrimony comes from the Latin patris and munis, the father's duty. It is indeed his duty to give his children an identity so that they know their place in the world. So I think that get that gets at it, you know, um, I think there's more sort of psychology that you need to kind of unveil to sort of understand why the parents are more inclined to follow the, fa the father than the mother. What I was surprised with is that every single one of the 23 contributors to the book who all do like kind of like a 3000 word essay about how their father um, led them to Christ and they were strong Catholics, which is why they're strong Catholics. And you have this great network across the country of these just top-notch intellectuals, and you, and you reached out to them. And that's how you kind of formulated the book to begin with. My observation was that they're all really good writers. Like, not everyone who's a radio personality and is smart, obviously, is a good writer. But it's, they're all very well written. And I think you told me that you didn't really edit them. They were all kind of handed in as is, right? Yeah, well, I needed to edit uh, Tony Esselin's a lot. Yeah, but. yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> no, you have people like Esselin in the book and Scalia, these names. And, and, you know, a lot of them are Catholic names that a lot of people won't recognize. But, you know, but then you have some real, um, you know, some, some more normal folk, I would just say. And uh, actually, we're going to interview um, Megan Riley next week because her father's, her, the story of her, the story she tells of her father is pretty awesome. The pro yeah. pro-life thing. Oh, yeah. That, that's one of the best ones in the book. Um, yeah, I mean, just the, first of all, yeah, there's a lot of Catholic intellectuals who are the contributors. So those ones, yeah, there was very little editing. So the, the process was they, you know, we sort of talked about what the book was, what their essays um, were, were, should basically be about. As the editor, I'm trying to stay out of it as much as possible and not like put them into a box and like do it like this. I'm just trying to, you know, basically it's like the book is because of our fathers it's Catholics tell how their fathers led them to Christ, you know, go for it. And, that, and they didn't need to do anything else. Cause that's, that was another observation I made about the book is that you write this like really strong introduction that had the data, the study out of Switzerland, I think that showed like, listen, like, you know, two generations of fathers that kind of slip away from the faith and you can just crush that, that cut that Catholic culture entirely. Like, like you said, you can, you can be the father that is ultimately responsible for hundreds, if not thousands of years of, your family losing the religion, right? Um, and then it just goes into these, these strong Catholics telling their story about their dad. And they didn't really have to um, get that deep into the theology and the philosophy. They just said, like, this is what my dad did. And, but it follows, that, it follows your data and your argumentation. And it just makes for, like, a really strong book. And then you kind of finish it off with the introduction. But you started, it, you started the book off with – you might have done this on purpose. If not, it was – kind of genius because one of the strongest stories in the book comes from Mr. Castillo. And it just, yeah, it, just in a sense that after you read it, you want to read the other ones. So do you want to yeah. kind of go, go into the Castillo story? 
Yeah, the reason I put that first, it was intentional, and Ignatius Press agreed that it should go first. And because the consensus was that Kent, like who that story is about, which is it's about John Castillo. This this one's sort of unique in that the author, John Castillo, he's really talking about two people. He's talking about his father and he's talking about his son, too, because his son died in a school shooting uh, in Colorado in 2019. So Kendrick was 18 years old. He rushed the front of the school, um, the front of the classroom when a shooter had a gun. The shooter's plan was to execute all the kids in his classroom as they were on their knees. And Kendrick was the one who had the bravery, the courage and the love for his, you know, his classmates to rush the shooter. He ends up getting shot and dies. Two other male students are able to subdue him. Um, but not only is he, you know, that's like a good American story, right? Like, see, he's just a hero in like the American sense of the word, but he's, you know, a martyr too, in the sen- in the Catholic sense of the word. And martyrdom is really the end. That's like the end goal of the Catholic life. Like, do you love people? enough to die for them do you know of god enough to die for him um and because of that you know kendrick just embodies the christ-like figure um he gave his life for his friends he's a hero he's a martyr so that's why his his story um was put first and john yeah john's essay is awesome he just he talks about how his dad like all the things that his dad did the hunting trips the camping trips they, they used to take Kendrick on those trips ever since he was three years old. This was their only child. So I got into some personal conversations with John. Um, you know, he had, and I, and I actually think he talks about some of this in the book. They had a miscarriage. They had trouble conceiving. And then Kendrick was like this miracle for him and his wife, Maria. And they just like, you could just like, this essay just like overflows with like how much John and loved Kendrick. It was like just the center of their life. At one point, he talks about how Maria walks around the house now and just like kisses pictures of Kendrick because she misses him so much. And I remember he told me that on the phone the first time I talked to him. Um, the, the saddest story in the book too, but it, it, it just, and here, here's why I brought up your introduction because you, not you, but Mr. Castillo contrasts his son and his character with the two school shooters that day who were, um, in terms of uh, their father figures in their life, were the complete opposite. So can you talk about who, who they were to the shooters? Yeah, that was an awesome part. So I, t- I talked to John on the phone about this. I, and I said to him, I said, do you know anything about the fathers of the other two kids? And he did. I mean, he, he's, he's, so, he was completely immersed in the court cases and finding out what happened to these kids and what happened to his son. So he knew all about the, the backstories of these kids. And, and I, you know, I think I said to him on the phone, let me guess, you know, no fathers, you know, broken homes, terrible situations. And he said, yeah, uh, absolutely. One of them, one of them was adopted, right? So we, obviously we encourage adoption. Adoption is a good thing. But the reality of adoption is that you're abandoned by your parents, right? So in, some, in, some, in some way. I mean, it can be a, a heroic abandonment, you know, in the case of, you know, a mother who really doesn't think she can raise her kids. And she, and it's, it, but there's still a sense in the kid that, you know, my, my mom and my dad, you know, aren't raising me right so that's one of the kids and even even the adoptive parents in that case um there was pro there was problems there a lot of neglect there mm-hmm. the other kid um had just the, you couldn't even like draw up a worse father relationship he, he was a he was a addict and he was a criminal and he was an he abused the mom and he was arrested multiple times and um and then really mysteriously she the that student and that student is a girl who was pretending to be a boy so this is like a transgender situation um that's how deep the father wound went there um she wrote on twitter like 11 days before how she missed her father um so these two you know these two students have these like deep father wounds you know they have this resentment and they and that's why they're friends they leave class they do drugs in one of their homes then they set one of the the mother's cars on fire. They write six 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 on the garage wall. Um, they and, and a pentagram. So like all this like satanic, violent, uh, weird stuff, drugs, and then they guns, and then they walk to the school, and they're just gonna kill like forty people. Yeah. And just gonna um, share their pain with the rest of the school. Yeah, just the she, yeah, exactly. You have this like clash between like these like 
satanic, satanically led students and this like Christ-like figure in Kendrick and they just clash on this day. And, and that's like, that's what and, the end and I was just thinking, of the Christian well, life. Contrasting those, those students that came together that day would almost be like a cheap shot, but because it followed your introduction that gave the data and the statistics and talked about the Catholic culture and what we're trying to save here. And it's not like Mr. Castillo um, harped on it or, or, you know, he just kind of mentions it, mentions it in passing that these two students, this was their situation in life. I'm telling you about my son. And it, it would have almost felt like, oh, what are you trying to say? That like kids who don't have the perfect situation or bad kids are going to grow up to be these type of people. But after your introduction, it made it that much more powerful. And so did all, all the rest of the contributors. Like they're just talking about their, their, their dads and the little things he did um, that, that affected them going forward as when they're adults. And uh, it just it just made it way more powerful. And then uh, now I'm thinking about the statistic about the school shooters, you know, because you can. Yeah, it's also it's also a completely valid point, because I don't know of one school shooter who had who lived with his dad in a a normal circumstance. Yeah, I I bet you nine out of 10 people have never heard this statistic that I think it's 30 out of the last 30 prominent school shootings in the United States. The shooters relationship with the father was like non-existent or something like that. Yeah, I think they they were not raised by their fathers in the same home, and that's like the that's the key statistic. We're going to talk like about statistics that we need to improve in the country. That's the one you need to be raised in the same home yeah. with your dad, not just like have a relationship on the weekends with him, but he's there to model the fatherhood of God and to give you the mercy and the justice that are appropriate and, and that model God the Father. People, you think about all these people focusing on the gun you know, after this, and it's that glaring, like, what type of gun is the, the gun of choice for school shooters? And now I'm thinking about the profile of the kids, which is usually white, upper middle class kids that, school, that shoot up these schools. And then we were talking about Black Lives Matter. And that's the other story I wanted to mention was, going back to, what, you know, the beginning of the interview was, I remember the Baltimore Freddie Gray five or six years ago incident when these mostly young black males in Baltimore are, are challenging the police and throwing rocks and all in masks. And, and um, this one mother comes out of nowhere and she grabs her like 15 year old son by the ear and all the cameras are focusing on it. And they made this mother out to be like a saint. And this was the story of they glorified kind of like this single mother, like that's a parent right there. You see what she's doing? She's a real hero. And I'm like, how could there be, like there's this huge story going on, which is thousands of young black males um, throwing rocks at cops. And you're going to say that the story here is the one mother who showed up. And it just goes back to what I was saying is about is, is that it's at the, that is very rare because once, once your kid hits 12, let alone 15, 16, 17, 18, the mother is not, can you imagine mom trying to control the four of us without dad? I mean, that's the classic line. It's, it's wait till your father gets home. That's all she had. Ultimately it was like, Wait till your father gets home. And yeah, she, used to, she used to call him when she used to beep him. When we were the beepers. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and, but it crosses it. But we don't have to focus on young black kids. This is, that's a particular problem, I think. But look at the 30, the last 30 school shooters. They're all white kids that have father issues. And so it just goes back to what you were saying. Was why if you read the reviews of your book, at least a lot of them, a lot of people, a lot of the people who've read your book are talking about the timeliness of it. Like, oh my God, we need this book like right now. I mean, you could actually make the argument that the book is too late because we've been watching this for decades. <laughs> Not that it's too little, but it's too, it's too late. You know? Um, no, I just, it just, it doesn't matter what race you look at. It just goes back to these fundamentals, these Catholic fundamentals, just, going back to Joseph and, and, and the, the creation of the Holy Family. Yeah. And yeah, it's just thinking about that. I know exactly what clip you're talking about with that when that mom did that. And it was sort of this awesome moment where, but like, how many mothers have the like, she was like a this like strong willed, you know, powerful mom who like, just wasn't going to take any BS from her kid. But like, she is an outlier of any of any sort of normalcy in, in, a, in a single parent household and like good for her for doing it. But yeah, like the bigger story is like, why are all these kids raised in homes without dads? Where are all the dads 
grabbing the kid, not by the ear, but grabbing him in a headlock and dragging him, dragging him out. Um, the, the, the truth is that the kids wouldn't be like, if you have a, a dad who gives you order in the household and gives you justice in the household, you're not out doing that. You're just not like out. And I said, I think I said this to Tim Gordon when I was on his show. I said, I would absolutely love to see somebody do like a statistical analysis of like all the people who have thrown rocks at police in the last year at these riots and, and what percentage of them grew up in a normal household with, a, with, with their father, uh, with the father who created them. Um, and I bet it's, I bet it's next to zero. And that, that's what the, like one of the things that the family does, the model family, the model through the Holy family is it gives order. Like there's an order to the family and order gives peace. And in peace, you can contemplate the, the, the larger truths of life. But if you don't have order and you don't have peace, you don't even have the time as a kid or a young adult to think about uh, the, 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 lar- the larger truths in life. Like, who am I? Who is God? Do I want to have a relationship with God? What, what am I supposed to do with my life? Not like, what am I supposed, like, what job am I supposed to have? Like, look, who are you in the, in the deepest sense? And what are you supposed to do in the deepest sense? And that's what a family does. It's the order of things. And, and I really think like there is a certain segment of our political makeup in this country of political leaders who don't want that order. That order is catastrophic to them because order creates all of this all of this peace in the family and this time to contemplate what is truly good for you. And, and with that, you come out being much more, much more conservative values, much more traditional, much more religious. Um, But it's these things like abortion and contraception and surrogacy and homosexuality and divorce that they, they do everything they can to to make access to these things a lot easier. Mm. And all of these things, the thing they have in common is they create less families. Like that's what all of those things do. They create less families. That's not even guesswork. I mean, Black Lives Matter website, everyone kind of knows this now in our circles anyway, the Black Lives Matter admits we seek to destroy the Western family. You know, yeah. that, they admit that's the enemy of what we want. And you can go back to Karl Marx, who thought the enemy was, was uh, the, the true enemy of the people was, was the family structure. That needed to be broken out first. Christianity needed to, be, needed to be busted up. And then you get the neo-communists 100 years later follow the wall, but they kind of repackage themselves as these progressive Democrats. And look at what they're doing. We got Rachel Maddow talking about, you know, a few years ago, she came out with this scary commercial that was like, we need to realize that children are not the property of their parents. The children belong to all of us. You know, it's just like, they don't belong to the family. Like that's really, that's a really scary statement. And, and, you know, just they're out, they're out there telling us at this point, you know, they, they're infecting, if they can't get at your family, they're going into where you send your kids, which is the school. I mean, it was Bill Ayers that said, um, you know, education is the motor force for revolution. I mean, Ayers is a secular atheist radical. You know, they know, they know if they're not, if we can't get into the family or break up the family, we go to the schools. I mean, I don't know how you can deny that there is this overt attack to get your kids. Yeah, it's a, and the, the term, I think that the Black Lives Matter came out and just said like, you know, we're, we want to disrupt the Western family. But, and then the other term they use is to re, to reimagine the family, right? They want to reimagine the police. Yeah. Um, they want to, they also want to reimagine the family. Um, and what that means is like, wait a second, we need to break out of this, 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 uh, you know, this taking for granted of you know, mom, dad, plus kids in one household. And in, in one sense, they're right in the sense that it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. That's what we talked about at the beginning of the show. Fathers don't need to stick around. But you watch what happens when you truly get a culture to reimagine the family and you get rid of the, the Western notion of the family and you truly have the norm is no longer for the, the man, woman, lifelong relationship, creating children, staying in their lives, their whole lives. You wait to see the destruction that you bring down. And then you think, wait a second, don't they know that's going to happen? And the answer is probably yes. They do know that. They do know that's yeah, going to happen. And we don't, we don't need any more proof. We've already seen what the breakdown of the family has done to certain segments of our society. Like, what is this? 
you know, what is this experimentation? Or like, we'll see what happens. Like, we know we've been watching it for 50 years. Right. And I just, it goes back to, um, you know, before we wrap it up, it goes back to your observation about St. Joseph. It's just like, gee, if there was ever a family that didn't need a father, it was Jesus and Mary. Like, they're going to be fine. But for some reason, mm-hmm. God says he invites Joseph into that package. And then the way you open up the book, I'll just read it again. Uh, the family is the basis in the Lord's plan and all the and all the forces of evil aim to ab- demolish it. Uphold your families and guard them against the grudges of the evil one by the presence of God. That was by St. Charbel. So this, I mean, even though you're talking about a very pointed uh, topic, which is fatherhood and the, and, the, and the generational transmission of the faith, I mean, you're clearly out there saying and trying to get this point across that the church in general, the family in general, um, is what's going to, is what's going to save say the world or this country or even your kids salvation you know yeah no that's it the 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 point of life is to have peace and happiness and then and then to to take that peace and happiness with you when you die to be to live with god forever and the only vehicle that can accomplish that is the catholic church the catholic church is the body of christ um as broken and as and as many problems as it has right now um, you know, there's, a, a, you know, men much, much wiser than me, have, you know, already have kind of told us what's going to happen with the church. There's going to be a, you know, a very, a, a much, much smaller church, faithful believers who actually want to live um, the Christian life, who, who believe in, in the dogmas of the faith that are going to sort of, you know, remain in the church um, and and build and build the church back up, and that's and we need as many people doing that as we can. Uh, right now, it's not you know it's a very it's a very small amount of people who are willing to sacrifice you know all that they have or or even a little of what they have to be to build the church back up, which will which is the vehicle to build society back up, which is to give people peace and happiness um, and to save and to save them. If, if, nothing, if nothing else, I mean, even for secular friends of mine, like it's kind of an inspiring book. Like it's like you start realizing, you know, friend, your friends with, with, who have kids, um, how important you are. And that can only lead to the next step, which is, which is let me find out why I'm so important. And, and, and your faith and mine is that it'll lead them to the church. So and along, you know, just before we wrap it up, I did want to read one thing that you wrote. The world's biggest problem is the ruin of the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church's biggest problem is the ruin of fatherhood. If the church will succeed once again in teaching the gospel to the world, it will need to be led by fathers who may no longer stand by as idle observers as their children are entrapped by the world and led into the destructive vices of secularism and materialism. So I think that kind of is repeating what you had just said in the past minute or so. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we kind of wrap it up? No, just the, that, that target group that we're talking about the, the, the final word um, is that, you know, you need to have a con you need to have a conversation with yourself about the Catholicism cultural. If you just want to be a cultural Catholic. Okay. The reason for that would, would be that you don't believe it's true. If you, if you want to have an impact, a spiritual impact on your children and you want your children to live the Catholic faith, if you want, your, if, you, if, if there's anything in you that wants to um, retain the faith for your children and your grandchildren, then it's going to come down to you. Now, that you're only going to be impacted by what I just said if you come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. Um, and this is where I started my faith journey, you know, like 10 years ago. I need to find out if I believe Jesus Christ is who he said he is. If the answer to that is no, then your cultural Catholicism will do just fine. That's fine. You know, your your children and your grandchildren, they'll lose the faith and you shouldn't really care. But if you come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, then you need to change the way you're living your Catholic faith because you're going to lose it for the rest of your family. Uh, and that's and, I'm, and that's really who I'm talking to through the book. Uh, but I love all these other these kind of these sub conversations about fatherhood in society. Um, but the thrust of the book is that, and that's who really we need to get to read the book. Like that that person you know who's getting married, 
that person you know who has, you know, was married a few years ago and has a couple of kids, but you're pretty sure they're not really going to, they haven't really embraced uh, the Catholic faith, but they sort of identify as Catholic. Well, they, they need to make a decision. Like, what, what's your decision? Is Christ, is Christ who he said he is? Yes or no? Like, let's man up a little bit. That's what fatherhood's about, right? We're, we're, you're, you're a father. You're called to protect your family. You're called to serve your family. You're called to, you know, answer the door at 3 a.m. if you hear a strange knock. Well, in the same sense that you protect your kids' worldly needs, what about their spiritual lives? What about their eternal life? What about, what about their, their existential, existential thoughts about who they are and what they are? You need to feed those two and nurture those two. So you need to figure out the answers to those questions in order to do that. <laughs> Declan? That, that's a little thin, the, the, the three-year-old. That, that might be a good way to end it. Yeah. So that's that's okay. the message. Um, let's end it there. When my wife comes in, I'm sure I'm in trouble for something. Are <laughs> we just for doing this? I'll, I'll wrap up and record like a conclusion later. Hey, Kathy. Want to say hello? Okay, sorry about that, everyone. Not the way we wanted to end the show. A productive conversation about fathers interrupted by a mother. God's way of reminding everyone of who's truly in charge. No matter, we were wrapping it up anyway. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Good Men. Don't forget to go to tylerowley.com to learn more and order your copy of Because of Our Fathers, 23 Catholics tell how their fathers led them to Christ. Right now, this good man has got to go.